Let's start now with the overdose death epidemic in British Columbia. Have a listen to this now. This is Lisa LaPointe, the province's top coroner, uh, talking about these overdose deaths yesterday. In July 2020, there were 175 suspected illicit drug toxicity deaths. This represents a 136% increase over the number of deaths in July 2019. The number of people dying in BC due to an unsafe drug supply continues to surpass deaths due to homicides, motor vehicle accidents, suicides, and COVID-19 combined. All right, Lisa LaPointe, the province's top coroner there speaking yesterday. Let's talk about this now with my guest, Dr. Carson McPherson. He is the managing director at the Cedars Cobble Hill. That's a treatment center for uh, drug addicts and uh, substance abuse addicts. I'm very pleased to welcome him to the show. Dr. McPherson, thank you very much for coming on. Thanks for having me. Okay, when you hear these numbers, I mean, this is, we're starting to get kind of numb to these numbers, 175 deaths in the month of July, the third month in a row with more than 170 drug overdose fatalities. What goes through your mind? How do you react to that number? Yeah, I mean, I think you hit it on the head. First and foremost, it's absolutely devastating to see this amount of British Columbians dying from a very treatable disease. But, you know, unfortunately, it's been so continuous and unrelenting that I think it's become the new normal. And, and you know, these types of numbers and announcements are, are just becoming less and less surprising as the months go on. Yeah, what is causing it, do you think? I mean, is it the poison drug supply on the streets? Is that the primary problem? Yeah, I mean, that's that's certainly the, the challenge of, of the acute instances of overdose. But I think the problem is much broader than that. I mean, fentanyl coming on the scene certainly exasperated a problem and showed us just how vulnerable we are and how many people are struggling with this disease. But the reality is that doesn't start overnight. And we've had challenges challenges with addiction in, in British Columbia and elsewhere for uh, ages. And, and I think it, you know, now it's really just taken its toll in a way that it's it's really brought it to the public forefront making people, uh, you know, think about what we can do about it, which is a positive step. But now we have to start taking some action toward that recovery-oriented system of care that we know will uh, ultimately, you know, provide the most benefit for, for those struggling. Yeah, that's one. That's the main reason I wanted to bring you on today to talk about that treatment and recovery option, which, in my opinion, does not get enough emphasis here as we talk about this issue. We hear a lot about harm reduction, safe drug supplies, legalizing drugs, safe injection sites, and I'm not opposed to any of that. I think that, that all of that has a place, but we need to treat people. Like, is it possible? Tell me just a, a briefly, Dr. McPherson, a little bit about the, 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 the center where you, uh, where you work. What do you guys do there? Yeah, so I'm at Cedars at Cobble Hill. We're a 75-bed uh, treatment center on Vancouver Island, and we do everything from medical detox to clinical programming. We have a fairly extensive outpatient uh, network through digital health connections and, and a, a large emphasis on family programming as well. Okay, is there a waiting list to get into facilities like yours? Like we hear about people who want to get into treatment. We hear from desperate parents who want to get their kids into some kind of recovery program. Are there enough beds out there to treat people? You know, I think well, there's a, a couple points there. One is, I mean, there there are certainly enough beds in the province that are that are uh, can add value to the current challenge. I mean, every single night when we go to bed in British Columbia, there's treatment beds across the province that are going empty. And so I think yeah. it's really a function of understanding, you know, just just what we actually have in our system and, and providing the appropriate funding for 
uh, you know, um, uh, organizations out there that are providing these beds. I know my colleagues in this field um, routinely talk about this conversation where they'll have 10, 20, 30 percent capacity in their in their facilities that are going empty every empty. night because there's no, inappropriate funding for it. Right. And so that's a major challenge. And then I think you have also have to look at just what we have. I think we, we all know in British Columbia, I don't think anyone denies that, that there is, you know, a, a really broken system at best. And, and one of the steps to me would be understanding what we have and how we can start working together more collaboratively and in an integrated fashion to, to support those in the most need. Yeah, I think this is one of the things that might surprise people. I mean, there may be a perception out there that there is a lack of capacity in the system to treat people and to get them into recovery and treatment. But like you said, there are facilities out there that have got empty beds. The problem is the funding, right? I mean, a lot of people can't afford it, right? Yeah, exactly. I mean, you yeah. you, you definitely have challenges and barriers for people accessing care at, at all stages and, and, and linkages there. And I think if you if you go back to 2014 when the public health crisis was first announced and that you know things came on so hard and so fast, a lot of those resources and that focus went into how do we just how do we stop the bleeding? How do we stop people from dying? And you know at that point in time, with with the best of intentions to to move folks into recovery, but. Obviously, the pressures of, of fentanyl and the opioid overdose crisis just kept coming and coming. And, and you know, through that, the, the, you, you end up on your back foot. You're constantly reacting. You're trying to get, uh, you know, as many people, you know, home at night and safe at night as you can and, and not uh, have to make those calls to families that our first responders and service providers are making all too often. So I think if you look at the, the first reaction was to, to really take this harm reduction approach. And the challenge is that, you know, the focus has become so emphasized on that, that we're, we're missing the, the broader picture. And we're really playing into what's ultimately a sick care system and not a healthcare system. You know, it'd be tantamount to hospitals over investing in the ambulances. I mean, that's, that, that was good. We'll keep people alive, but what about the hospitals and how do we actually focus on that long-term wellness to get people back to, you know, positive and productive citizenry? Right. Speaking to Dr. Carson McPherson, Cedars Cobble Hill, it's an addiction treatment center. Is it possible to get people off these drugs? Like I've talked to people who think, well, when you see really down and out addicts on the street, there may be a perception that these people are beyond help. Um, But I've talked to people who've managed to kick their addictions or they've managed to get clean. You know, they've managed to get off drugs. Is it possible to get off these drugs? Yeah, and, and it's a very important message. It's not only possible, it should be expected. You know, with the right appropriate uh, treatments that are they're applied to meet the level of severity, the level of risk, uh, recovery is not only possible, but it's to be expected. And we've seen this time and time again in jurisdictions across this country and, and, and abroad. Uh, when you focus on quality of life, when you focus on a more robust, holistic wellness, and you have an integrated recovery-oriented system of care supporting those efforts, you know, people do repeatedly and predictably get well. Okay, what about the uh, the impact of the COVID-19 pandemic during all of this? Is that one of the drivers of this overdose death rate right now, do you think? Yeah, I think, you know, if you look at the at the onset and, and the sort of re-spike of the numbers from an overdose perspective, uh, you know, uniquely matched to COVID, I think there's a few challenges and, and not necessarily uh, isolated to those. You've got the fact that, you know, social socially uh, we're isolated, we're disconnected two main drivers of addiction. Um, you've got, on the other hand, pressures and ambiguity, anxiety, depression, people not sure if they're going to have jobs, if they're going to have, uh, you know, what's coming down the pike next year. So you've got a lot of uncertainty and a lot of pressures that way. 
And then I think on the other side of it too, we've got a lot of well-intentioned, um, you know, fiscal programs to support Canadians that are out there. But unfortunately, you know, part of it, uh, undeniably, I think at this point is exasperating the fact that we've had under mistreated addiction in this province and elsewhere for a long time. And you know, we can just see in, in times like this just how vulnerable we are to to you know setbacks and what was starting to look like numbers going in a, in a more positive direction, albeit so far too many people dying. But, you know, that fast, we're set right back on our feet here. So Yeah. All right. Welcome back. Talking about the drug overdose crisis in British Columbia. 175 deaths from illicit drug overdoses last month alone. My guest is Dr. Carson McPherson. He is with the Cedars Cobble Hill uh, Addiction Treatment Center on Vancouver Island. Do we need more recovery and treatment services for drug users in our province? If you want to weigh in on that, give me a call. 604-280-9898 is the number. 604-280-9898, star 9898 on your cell. Dr. McPherson, just before I take a, a call here, the government, if the government was here, they would say that, look, we are pouring resources into this crisis. We've got a standalone uh, mental health and addiction ministry now. Uh, we have bought hotels to get people off the streets and get them into housing. Is that enough, though? Because I just wonder if the services for people are adequate when they're put into a hotel and get to get them off the street. Are people getting the necessary services, in your opinion? Yeah, I mean, I, I I'll just say I don't. I certainly don't envy the job that Minister Darcy and her team have. They've got an incredible yeah. challenge, and I and I really respect the the feat that they've got in front of them. And and I think it's it's a well noted point. The, the reality is, a lot of what we see right now is is that we're on our back foot, and that's been you know caused by a host of issues. And and policy can be some of those, but obviously fentanyl and where we're at societally, um, yeah, perhaps more so. But I, I, I do worry about, you know, putting up standalone infrastructure and standalone programs that aren't actually connected. We know this is a chronic disease and, and acute interventions uh, in, in small piecemeal places just aren't, aren't going to cut it. This is a, a long-term chronic illness. And when we treat it as such, we can expect the outcomes that will move people back into, you know, being positive British Columbians and they're engaged in our communities and, and fruitful citizens. Okay, let's squeeze in a couple of phone calls here. Carrie on the open line in Vancouver. Hi, Carrie. How are you doing today? Good. Good. That's good. Yes, uh, I'm a recovering addict. I used heroin for 43 years. Wow. I mean, there was a lot of people, a lot of people that put their hand out to me, tried to help, got me into recovery centers, got me into detoxes, got me anywhere and everywhere they wanted to put me. Nothing, and I repeat, nothing helped until I decided I wanted the help. When I decided I wanted to stop, my life had gotten to the point where I ended up in drug court. And that was, was, there, the was there a moment, th- thank you, Carrie, for calling, was there a moment for you in, in your sort of path to recovery that you sort of bottomed out and, and you made like what what triggered your decision to try and get clean i was looking at seven years in jail yeah and at the age of 59 it wasn't i didn't look i wasn't looking forward to it and my lawyer turned me on to a uh, uh something called drug court which is also a recovery a drug and alcohol recovery system. 
Okay. You learn everything about yourself, but you want, you have to, got to want to stop. You right. have to want to get yourself back into life itself. Carrie, good luck with, today, good luck I have with a job your, as well. Thanks for calling in, man. Good luck with your continuing recovery. Dr. McPherson, what do you think about that? That, you know, sometimes people, I've heard this said before, people need to hit rock bottom before they can, before they decide to get clean. Your thoughts? Yeah, I don't. I mean, first of all, I appreciate, you know, anytime someone's going to share about their recovery, that's something we need out there so people know it's yeah. possible and attainable. And, and uh, you know, I, I really worry about waiting for that rock bottom because, as we know now, with the numbers of people dying, I think it was almost five and a half per day in British Columbia in the last month. Yeah. Um, you know, and, and uh, you know, I think it speaks to a more broader challenge in, in our healthcare system. Oftentimes, we're waiting for the most unhealthy person in that family unit or workplace unit to start making the best healthcare decisions. And I think there's there's pushes and pulls. I mean, certainly there's windows of motivation. That's definitely a component of this disease. They're not people aren't always ready. But I also think that at times we, we mistake or misinterpret motivation for clarity. I mean, if you just don't know what's possible and if you don't have that hope, you don't know that there's services out there that you can link to, um, you know, you can understand that someone may look unmotivated or feel unmotivated for change. And I think yeah, there's there's a, a job of someone leaning in, but there's a, a, a pull-in f- uh, factor as well. Thanks a lot for coming on today. Much appreciated. All right, welcome back to the show. Let's keep talking about the epidemic of drug overdose deaths in British Columbia. 175 deaths last month. It's the third month in a row with more than 170 overdose deaths in our province. What is driving this death rate? If you take a look at the drug supply on the streets of Metro Vancouver, a lot of experts will point to fentanyl being laced into these drugs as causing some of a lot of these deaths. Where do these drugs come from? How do they get in to BC? What a great guest. I have to talk about that. Bill Spearn, he is an inspector with the Vancouver Police Department. He is with the Organized Crime Division of the VPD. I'm very pleased to welcome him to the show. Inspector Spearn, thanks a lot for doing this. Yeah, thanks for having me today. Okay, when you see these uh, these overdose deaths like we've seen last month, the month before that, uh, these skyrocketing numbers, as a, as a guy who's one of the top cops and trying to stem the, stem the flow of these deadly drugs onto the streets of Vancouver, what goes through your mind when you hear those numbers? Uh, you know, it's, uh, what can I say, it's a horrible feeling to see a sliding back up this curve after we had such a, 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 you know, a much better year last year, although we almost nearly lost a thousand people, which is a thousand too many. Um, to slide backwards is uh, incredibly disappointing. Yeah, let's talk about fentanyl, right? Is that the biggest problem in your mind, is that the drug supply is so dangerous or poisoned? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, yeah. you know, uh, health experts tell us that uh, fentanyl is responsible for around 80% of our overdose deaths, so that right. definitely is our biggest issue. Right. And what are you seeing on the streets of Vancouver in the last few months in terms of the drug supply? Well, you know, contrary to what we heard at the beginning of the uh, the COVID crisis, uh, there is no supply shortage. Uh, we've been doing nothing but seizing the same amount of fentanyl or even more than we did uh, before the crisis began. Hmm. You mean there was a perception when COVID hit that the drug supply was going to be affected because of the closed border? Is that what you mean? Yeah, I mean, a lot of people assume that, you know, because the borders were closed that, right. uh, you know, nothing would be flowing into the country. But as we know, you know, the commercial traffic still flows and other traffic still flows across the border, like uh, post and uh, courier traffic. Well, yeah, and, th- and one of the problems here, as I understand it, is 
fentanyl can be shipped in very small quantities, right? Because it's just such a concentrated, powerful drug that it's possible to smuggle these drugs into the country in very, very small packages through the mail or, or elsewhere. Like, how do these drugs get into Canada, into BC? Well, I mean, it, you know, if we're speaking about fentanyl, you know, at the start of the opioid crisis, we saw a lot of our fentanyl coming into Canada from China through our mail system. Right. Um, we don't see that as much recently, which leads me to believe that there's probably some uh, domestic production occurring in illicit labs here in Canada. Wow. Um, you know, the other problem drug we have is methamphetamine, and we've seen a surge in meth as well. Um, and, you know, a lot of that is smuggled into Canada from south of the border, but we do have a lot being produced in Canada due to the availability of precursors used to manufacture methamphetamine. I mean, BC has an opioid crisis, but other parts of Canada are dealing with a methamphetamine crisis, like on the prairies in Quebec. Speaking to Inspector Bill Spearn from the Vancouver Police Department, he's with the Organized Crime Division. It's interesting to hear you say about your suspicions there about maybe some domestic production of, of fentanyl. Um, I guess there's the perception is this is made mostly in labs in China. Is that where most of it's coming from? But you think maybe some of it's being made here? Is that right? Yeah, I mean, you know, like I said, at the beginning of the crisis, we saw a majority of our fentanyl coming in through the mail system from China. Right. We don't see that as much anymore, which leads me to believe that there's some domestic production occurring. Okay, have you have you found any evidence of that? Have you guys busted any labs that are making this stuff here? Uh, not recently in Vancouver, no. Um, you know, there have been very few fentanyl labs taken down in BC, but, uh, you know, we are seeing the precursors to make fentanyl coming in as well. Right. Is there fentanyl coming into BC? A lot of people have heard about it, about it coming in through the mail. Uh, is it also coming in through our ports by by ship or by sea? Yeah, I mean, those are traditional smuggling routes for organized crime to bring illicit drugs into Canada. So I have no doubt that this is still coming in through the mail system, the courier system, you know, commercial cross-border traffic, like commercial trucks and ships, because those are traditional smuggling routes. Yeah, what is the demand like for the, for these drugs in Vancouver? Is, has that been going up during the COVID-19 pandemic? Um, geez, I, I don't know if it's been going up, but we've always had that, you know, that core group of uh, people who use illicit drugs. But I don't think until the opioid crisis hit us that we knew how many people actually were using illicit drugs because we started seeing, you know, the number of deaths almost surpass the number of people that we thought were using drugs. So, wow. you know, and, you know, the numbers keep climbing and it's just, uh, you know, it's, it's really disheartening for us to see, um, you know, how many people are uh, dying because of this oh, issue. Yeah. Yeah, no, it's absolutely tragic to see these numbers. And I, I wonder for, for the people who are trafficking these drugs and profiting from them, what is the appeal of, of fentanyl for the drug traffickers? Like, is this, is this stuff cheap to make? Is there a huge profit markup on these drugs and the, the ease of smuggling it into British Columbia? Is that, is that generally like, are, are drug, drug traffickers making a ton of money off of this? A ton of money. I mean, this is fentanyl is cheap to buy. It's cheap to produce. And the money you make selling it is uh, much more lucrative than other controlled substances. Yeah. And what about um, the flow of these drugs from China? Because we hear a lot about that. Can you still order these this stuff online? Like I remember hearing stories and seeing reports about you could go onto the dark web or whatever or other other sort of dark parts of the internet and actually order your fentanyl online and have it mailed to you directly to you from China within a couple of days. Is that still going on? 
Yeah, absolutely. I mean, this is why it's so appealable to people is that, you know, you don't have to be connected to anybody. You don't have to meet anybody in a dark alley at midnight. You can order this stuff online. It'll come to a post office box. Wow. Wow. What can you guys do to stop that? Well, I mean, we're all, we're always going to target drug traffickers, importers, exporters, manufacturers of illicit drugs. We'll always tackle the supply side of the illicit drug supply. You know, in Vancouver, since 2006, it's been our policy not to target drug users. We've always declared drug use disorders to be a health issue. And, you know, recently the CACP, the Canadian Association of Chiefs of Police, um, and our public prosecution service also say the same thing, that this is a health care issue when it comes to drug use disorders. Um, you know, police chiefs openly support things like safe supply, which is a monumental announcement, uh, you know, a couple of weeks ago. Um, but what we're saying is we need to tackle not only the supply side, but the demand side. You know, getting people into things like safe supply takes money out of the hands of organized crime. It gets people access, you know, getting people access to safe supply is going to lower crime. And most importantly, it's going to save lives. All overdose deaths are preventable, and we don't want to see any more deaths. You know, I don't want to underemphasize the importance of things like harm reduction services um, when we talk about supervised consumption sites, overdose prevention sites. But, you know, with 175 people dying last month needlessly, um, you know, we're, we're forcing people to go use street drugs and we need to invest in more access to safe supply. I mean, every supervised consumption site or overdose prevention site should also have safe supply, like a, a MySafe machine, the, the hydromorphone dispensing machines available to people. Wow. Speaking to Inspector Bill Spear in Vancouver Police Department, I'm really glad that you brought up that point around safe supply, the Canada's police chiefs calling for decriminalization of, of drug possession. Because I think sometimes might say, well, well, this guy's a cop and this is the war on drugs. No, I mean, you guys have been calling for a safe supply of drugs in the city of Vancouver now and, and um, supporting safe consumption sites and that kind of thing. So I think it's important to point that out. But at the same time, when you've got a drug supply that's laced with this deadly fentanyl where a couple of grains of this stuff can kill you, that has to be tackled by law enforcement, right? I mean, people are peddling poison here and killing people with it. So you've got to, would you say you've got to go after these, these high-level traffickers? Yeah, correct? absolutely. You know, we, 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 and we've had success doing that. You know, we've, we've had, uh, I think, three or four projects recently. Uh, we just received charge approval on a project we call Project Tavern, where we took uh, 24 kilos of drugs, including two kilos of fentanyl, off a couple of uh, guys who imported it into Canada uh, using the mail system. Um, you know, we had Project Transit back in May, where we took 20 kilos of what we believe to be fentanyl off the streets. And then uh, another uh, project we called Technicolor, where we uh, took down a, a fentanyl mixing site in a downtown Vancouver condo. So, I mean, we've had success wow. tackling the supply side, but, you know, we also need to concentrate on the demand. You know, dealing with the supply side and doing nothing about the demand side of things isn't going to work. So, you know, uh, we want to work with other agencies. We know we can't solve this by ourselves. This is a, a very complex problem. Um, you know, a lot of it's a healthcare uh, issue, but, uh, you know, we want to work with people. We don't want to see any more deaths. Like, okay, what happened to those traffickers that you just described there? Like, when you guys take down a high-level dealer trafficker who's got, like, kilos of fentanyl and you catch them, 
do they go to jail for a long time? Like, what are the penalties like for a crime like that? The penalties are actually quite significant once they get convicted. But you know, we have to uh, we have to build our case. Once we take down these people uh, and, and seize the drugs, we have to get the drugs analyzed. We have to get expert reports. We have to have full disclosure up front to get charge approval. And then this goes through the court system. Um, you know, the, the courts have been set back a bit, like everything else, because of COVID. But, you know, things are ramping up again. And, uh, you know, we're starting to receive charge approval on a lot of these. All right, welcome back as we continue my conversation with Inspector Bill Spearn. He is with the Organized Crime Division of the Vancouver Police Department. And a day after another massive death toll in overdose drug overdose deaths in the province of British Columbia, 175 deaths from drug overdoses in the province last month. We put that in perspective. That's uh, more than car crashes, homicides, suicides, and COVID-19 combined and we're talking about the deadly drug supply in the city of vancouver inspector spear and like in your experience uh, in a long in a long career in law enforcement is this the worst you've seen in terms of like the danger of this drug supply and, and the le- the lethal nature of these drugs in the city yeah i've never seen anything in my almost 25 years of service with the vancouver police that can compare to this yeah and is that driven by fentanyl just suddenly coming on the scene like what's what's driving that do you think yeah absolutely fentanyl has been the you know the the biggest factor in this occurring and uh you know i mean this we've been we've been fighting this battle with fentanyl since 2014 right and we were actually making some very good progress uh you know until 2020 and like i said we're we're sliding backwards now and and we really need, need to get a hold of this problem uh, 175 lives a month is just it's horrific yeah and is it um is the covid-19 pandemic to blame for that i mean people using alone people more desperate if they've lost their jobs or whatever do you think that the pandemic is part of the problem as well yeah absolutely i mean it, yeah. it's had an effect on this uh you know we've been we've all been socially isolating and i can tell you that since the start of the the pandemic in bc which i believe was the the 18th of march mm-hmm. you know we've been tracking our overdose deaths in vancouver like we always do and we believe um that around 80% of the people who overdosed and died in vancouver since the start of the pandemic were using alone so that oh, that's yeah. a huge issue for us yeah yeah, you mentioned um, earlier about the a, a potential for a safe drug supply. Can you talk a little bit about that? Because people are dying from these fentanyl-laced drugs. Is part of the solution here to substitute that with a safe drug supply? And and is that a tough position for you as, as a cop who's been on the front lines on this for long for so many years? Um, was it a tough? Uh, you know, was it a tough? thing for me to tackle in my head absolutely it was it it took me years and years and years to uh to finally you know for the light bulb to go off in my head and i can tell you that um it really it just doesn't make sense uh, to tell people who have a health issue where they are using um something because they have an addiction to go to the street to get it and it's even though we know it's poison so, you know, 
what do we mean by a safe supply? We, you know, mm-hmm. we've had safe supply or examples of safe supply uh, OAT stuff in Vancouver for a long time. Crosstown Clinic, hugely successful. Yeah. You know, now we have things like the MySafe program where they use the hydromorphone dispensing machine in Vancouver. I mean, those are examples of, of safe supply that, you know, are scalable, especially the MySafe machines. And uh, if we're providing a clean regulated, you know, medically monitored alternative to these people, then we're not forcing them to to go commit crime. We're not forcing them to sell their bodies in order to get, you know, their drugs that they need because they have an addiction issue. Speaking to Inspector Bill Spurn, uh, Vancouver Police Department Organized Crime uh, uh, Division. Uh, Of course, that is a a policy decision of other levels of government, whether we go to a safe drug supply, and there's certainly rising calls to to go that route. In the meantime, you guys still have to deal with this inflow of of poisonous, deadly drugs on on the streets of Vancouver. You mentioned that you've had some success in in taking down some of these high-level drug traffickers. But is it? We've only got like two less than two minutes left here. But is it kind of like a like a whack a mole game? Like if you take down one major drug trafficker, is there just another one that just pops up to take that person's place? Yeah, absolutely. But you know, like I said earlier, um, you know, we will always tackle the supply side, the illicit supply side. But we also, we as a society, equally need to tackle the demand side. If we bring that demand down for illicit street drugs, organized crime's not making money. People aren't dying. And, you know, we're reducing crime. So so those are three very big uh, benefits to things like safe supply and demand reduction. Thank you for your time today. It was great to hear your perspective on it. I appreciate it a lot. It was my pleasure. Thanks for having me. Back to the show. Let's talk about the backlog for driver road tests in British Columbia now uh, shut down for quite a while during the COVID-19 pandemic. I was trying to get back up and running, but there are delays. There are backlogs. There is a waiting list. Let's check in with Steve Wallace now. He's the owner of Wallace Driving School. I'm very pleased to welcome him back to the show. Steve, thanks for coming on. Hey, good morning, Mike. Okay, what's the deal with um, driving tests in British Columbia right now? If I want to go out and get a road test, how long do I got to wait for one? Well, um, what they've done is they've given priority to people that had their canceled tests in March. So March 17th, they stopped testing. So the people that had their tests canceled in the last two weeks of March have been permitted to book in a timely fashion. And then they allowed people who had their tests canceled in April to book, and then the people in May, and now the people in June. So now all those people have been time-released and given the first priority to book. Now, as of August 24th, as of Monday, then all of the other people who wish to take the road test are now able to book into the times they put in the system. So I was up from midnight till 5 in the morning trying to book our students uh, who had been eligible to book, and I did that for two nights in a row. We, as our own driving school, have 118 people to book, and we've booked about 90 of them so far, and we still have others to go. But they will be booked in chronological order in a manner that has them waiting as much as the people from March had to wait. That's how ICBC has decided to do it. Okay, and so what's the typical waiting period now? The waiting period, unless you luck out and get a cancellation, is probably around two months, maybe Whoa. slightly more. 
Wow. So if you were due to go in in, let's say, September, say say you're supposed to have a test on September the 7th, okay? Yeah. Yeah. In all likelihood, those times would already have been booked, and the best time you're going to get is probably around, I would say, November, maybe mid-November, maybe December, because the people who who were supposed to go in March didn't get to go till July 3rd and onward. That's when the tests began. So those people now, because of their delay, have been handled. And the people that never had booked a test and were not permitted to book a test because you can only book 100 days in advance at that time, those people now are delayed as much as the people in March were delayed. Okay, speaking to Steve Wallace about the backlog and delays for driving tests in British Columbia, Global News had a report on the News Hour last night. Steve, I know you're aware of it, that the backlog is frustrating for a lot of people, including people who have gone online to the ICBC website and have found some frustration there. What what are you hearing about the operation of the website? The website crashed. It had so much. They thought they had it on, uh, under control. I talked to one of the people in management and they thought they had it under control but there was such an amazing volume that it crashed i was sitting there myself at one minute after midnight you know on the 24th attempting to book test times but the the system didn't get reopened until about 2 30 in the morning so um we've done that for a couple nights in a row now and uh they they seem to have the problem solved they've also done two other things one while they had this layoff, they've trained a bunch of new examiners. Yes. And on top of that, they've or, they opened a whole bunch of other sites. Yeah. So rather than just the singular sites that you had to do the test, they've opened several other sites and sent the examiners to those sites to try and handle the volume. But I don't think they ever expected the numbers um, that they had. So there were 60,000 road tests canceled in British Columbia. Now, wow. you're no mathematician, but you can add and subtract. <laughs> Figure out what kind of backlog that's going to create. Yeah, that's a big backlog. I, hey, listen, ICBC, I guess they're trying. I mean, they've, they've hired 100 temporary driver examiners. Like you said, they've opened up 10 temporary road test locations. So they're trying. They've got these examiners wearing masks. They're disinfecting vehicles. They're putting down plastic wrap on seats. I mean, they're trying to keep people safe. I can understand all that, but but this has got Steve. This has got to be frustrating for people who are just trying to get a driver's license and get on the road. Well, particularly if you have a job application oh, yeah. and it requires a license, or you're going away to school in Eastern Canada or to Calgary or wherever. But the problem now is. The normal examiner would do nine road tests a day. But with COVID, they may only be doing six because they have to do the disinfectant. They have to put the sheets down. They have to do a whole scenario of things that are quite different. So where they were doing nine tests a day, now they're doing six. It doesn't matter if if you fired another 100 examiners. Your manner of proceeding is going to be delayed by at least that one-third. Okay, so, the last the so, last time the last time you were on Steve, we talked about the possibility of maybe ICBC working with certified driving schools like your own to maybe get them to help out. Could they help out maybe doing some of these road exams? 
Did you did you guys get anywhere with that? I mean, did the government take it, even a you know a semi serious look at it because it, it sounded like a reasonable idea to me. Well, I was formerly allowed to examine my own students, and so I know several other driving schools who offer the graduated licensing program. That's right. about one in you know every fourteen driving schools. Uh, there's fifty of us out of seven hundred driving schools that had that capability. Um, they declined to move in that direction, thinking everyone should get a fair test as opposed to uh, jumping the line. So uh, that was something that was rejected. And unfortunately, I think that may have caused a further backlog. But in their defense, you have to understand that what they're attempting to do is to get everyone in to a singular and consistent testing model. Um, my only beef with them is that we're partners with ICBC, and our advice simply was not sought. Uh, it was offered, but it was not sought. Um, I think that ICBC's got a problem of credibility now because the question that many of the students are asking, and out of the mouth of the babes, was that all those people got paid, and they were all working for that time period, but you know they, they were off for three months, but they're all paid, they're all working, some from home, some you know from the office, and where's the contingency plan, and how did they react to this situation? When I asked one of the upper-level management guys what they were doing for three months, he said, Steve, we didn't even know which examiners were coming back. Some of the examiners with kids at home uh, weren't coming back. We didn't know what was going on. So there okay. are some examiners, because of the home situation, who have chosen yeah. not to come back. So even though they've hired 100 oh. and have these different locations, I think it's two steps forward, one step back. All right, welcome back. As we continue talking about the backlog and delays for getting a driver's license in British Columbia to get a road test in BC now, there's a long waiting period. There has been problems with the ICBC website dealing with the backlog and the delays. My guest is Steve Wallace, who's got some frontline experience for this. He owns the Wallace Driving School. Your calls to him. I'd love to hear from you if you've had any experience with this backlog and delay in getting a road test at ICBC. Phone me right now, 604 604- Two eight zero ninety eight ninety eight is the number six zero four two eight zero ninety eight ninety eight star ninety eight ninety eight toll free on yourself. Let's go to your call, Scott, on the line in Surrey. Hi, Scott. Yeah, good morning, gentlemen. Um, yeah, my granddaughter just booked on Monday. Six month wait. Whoa. That's in the Lower Mainland. Whoa. And that Six is months. not uncommon. It is yeah. not different. That is now the norm. Six month wait. And I mean, I've got to sit down and I appreciate Mr. Wallace, what he said about, you know, some of the problems, but I've got to, you know, EB has got to give his head a shake. Why isn't he using the resources like, you know, the licensed driving school? ICBC licenses these schools to teach people how to drive, and yet somehow they are not capable of giving uh, a road test. I mean, you know, during this pandemic, everybody else has sort of stepped up and they've done all sorts of things, but ICBC can't. And I mean, this is, it just plays into the um, whole thing about ICBC being a dumpster fire and the government yeah. continues to shoot itself in the foot. I mean, this is just a bloody joke. Yeah, six I'll months. Listen to your comments. Thanks a lot for the call. Six month waiting time for an, a road test. Steve. Are you hearing similar stories? Man, that's a long wait. Well, what's happening is people, and he's in Surrey, 
So what's happening is a lot of people are canceling those road tests and they're booking in Kamloops or they're booking oh. in Hope or they're booking somewhere else outside of the region. Some of them are coming to the island and they're booking in the island. They're doing whatever they can to get a to get a road test, but you can't book in multiple jurisdictions. So as far as the time periods are concerned, I don't think that they appreciated the sheer volume and the number of people the volume of business and the number of people that were that were going to book. Well, so, how could they how could they not appreciate it? I mean, if you cancel sixty thousand road tests, what did they think was going to happen? Um, I'm not exactly sure, and I'm not exactly sure the kinds of resources that were offered. So, if you have a person who's in duress, suppose the person is a frontline worker, they get to go to the front line now. That's one thing that they will they will mm. actually help with. But as far as the time like front, goes, you mean a frontline if you're a frontline healthcare worker, is that what you mean? You you jump the line. Yeah. There's okay. no doubt about that. Yeah. So there there are scenarios that happen that are extremely odd and as far as timing is concerned, it, it there are certain budgetary considerations, but I have sold and here's what they've done to me, Mike, just personally with my driving school. I sold graduated licensing courses where the student gets their license 6 months early. Now that is gone. That advantage is gone. Four to five months of that advantage. Am I in in violation of my contract with my client? I've talked to a noted lawyer in this province that everyone knows, Chappelle Lafont, and she said, No, you're not. It's beyond your control. But is ICBC liable to say, Oh, you sold this program, Steve. The person takes your program, they get their license six months early in the end phase. But they've already lost four to five months yeah. in delay getting a test time. Are they going to mitigate that on the back end? I talked to an operative with the government who shall remain nameless, and he said there's no plan to do that. I said there better be a plan to do that because okay. I have sold these co- customers this program in good faith, and you're negating it. Okay, this is unacceptable. A six-month waiting time for a road test, I think, is ridiculous. 604-280-9898 is the number. Star 9898 on your cell. Susan calling from Langley. Hi, Susan. Hi. Um, I just wanted to call in because I actually am somebody who is part of the front line, and I just wanted to kind of talk about how there's no real way for us to social distance, so it was really a long time coming for us to figure out how to get that working, but it does seem like the public has been attacking a lot of us frontline workers about it, and I want what kind of to what know, kind of worker what kind of frontline worker work do you do? Oh, I take um, I take the calls of the licensing. <laughs> oh, oh, okay. You work at ICBC. I do. Okay, so you're what? You're getting a lot of like flack, are you? Oh yeah, people are calling in uh, death threats, things like that. Whoa, it's, whoa. Oh yeah, and it has nothing like we've we've been closed. We've been we don't have any access to anything either. So I mean. It's been really difficult for us too. So that's so got to be that's got to that. be that's got to be frustrating for you. You're just trying to do your job, right? Oh, exactly. And we have no control over when the testing's being done. Like I don't work directly at driver's licensing. I just help them book the test. Yeah. What do you think could be done to make it better? Uh, it would be nicer if we could if we could reach out to some other places, but we don't really have that capability at this point. That I know of. Okay, Susan, thank you very much for calling in. Well, look, I mean, you know, 
harassing people on the phone or make, make, making death threats, I mean, that's that's just as ridiculous as a six-month rating list. That, that is not acceptable either. I mean, you know, people are just trying to do their job. Steve, talk to me about that. I mean, come on, that's crazy. That is not good. Well, uh, I will. I will. I know the caller had uh, had some uh, sharp words for uh, David Eby, but I will say something in his defense. I met twice with him, and he is a person that gets the job done. He's responsible for ICBC. But these kinds of things are on-the-ground decisions, and as such, I'd be looking for him to make some definitive decisions to ease this backlog. When I said, hey, we have these 50 driving schools that could help you with testing, they said to me, you know, Steve, it's only going to solve 5 to 7% of the problem. That's all it's going to solve is 5 to 7% of the problem. Given that minuscule kind of um, help, uh, we would rather not go through the the hoops to get that done. We just have to concentrate on everyone being on a level playing field. And so what they've done is they've said, okay, you will all go in chronological order. Everyone will see, feel the pain. But I don't think they realized the major population areas like Vancouver and Surrey and Richmond yeah. and North Van and those places are where the biggest weights are going to be. You're not going to have that same weight in Bridge George. Okay. Let's uh, squeeze in another call here. Linda calling from Surrey. Hi, Linda. Hi. Hi. Just uh, just calling to inquire as to perhaps um, ICBC could hire uh, somebody that just cleans the cars. or the, Not ICBC, I guess it's the um, testing stations. Hire somebody that just cleans the cars, have some extra cars, and the driver in, uh, driving um, testers just go to the next car while um, the other ones get cleaned properly. And I'm sure that those cleaners get paid less than the instructor or than the okay. tester. So it would save some money and get some more people through. Steve, we got 30, you know, se- for 30 the seconds. More, you, yeah, you, the more you listen to our your listeners, the smarter we get. That's an yeah. extremely good situation, and it's a great suggestion. I wouldn't have thought of it. But uh, listen to your to your listeners, and they will come up with solutions that perhaps the government can use. Steve, thanks for coming on today. Anytime, Mike.